we go. Oh, geez, this thing again. <laughs> Continue. The robot lady said we're recording. So does it record the second we hit OK, or how does that work? You don't know, I guess. I don't know. We're recording now. But okay. I'm sad that our listeners can't hear that lady, because I know from last week that they just heard us being shocked by her, but not... Uh, yeah, I just listened to that. By the mystery voice. Yeah. And I guess this is happening. We're live. We're live. This is happening now. Okay. Hey, everybody. You've reached the Mayfair podcast. I'm Eric. I'm Andrew. This is Josh. It is May 25th, 2021, here in the lockdown trenches of Ottawa, where the Mayfair will sadly live likely for the next two months or so still. Crazy. Well, it doesn't sound so bad. You might have said two years, which I guess it almost will be by the end of it. (laughs) It'll feel like that. Definitely. At least we kind of have this hopeful, actual end of the tunnel kind of now where, so I think this happened right after we recorded last week, the rules from up high came down and they're all complicated and in depth of who's doing what and what's reopened. But the long and short of it is cinemas aren't coming back anytime soon in Ontario, barring some kind of miracle turnaround, I think. But it looks like, I think it's July 26 is theoretically the day that we can reopen in some capacity. I think the good news is it might be a bit more, like it might be at a percentage versus just 50 people. But we... Hopefully. We have no answers. That's just, it's a lot of maybes. But by August, we're back screening movies, possibly. Yeah, it's good. Just in, almost in time for my birthday, but not quite. I'll get over it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it was weird because I thought I saw that retail would be allowed to be open like 15%. Right, right. So I was thinking us because I was like, in my head, I'm like, we sell a service and, you know, you buy food and posters and stuff. And then I think I got Josh excited for a second and are conflicted. And then he was like, yeah, that's not us. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess we're not retail. It's confusing. Yeah, I think it's... Anything where there's like a big gathering like that. So I'm sure it's the same for live theater or sporting events or anything like that. We're still a couple months off. I know here in Ottawa, like there's not going to be Blues Fest and that sort of thing. So like Blues Fest is enormous, like tens of thousands of people Mm -hmm. shoulder to shoulder going to see a concert. That's not happening this year. But I think everything in that sense is pushed back till 2022. But yeah, so we're just in hibernation still and we'll continue to do our fundraising efforts through various means like the marquee and selling trailers and all that kind of stuff but it means we can kind of pseudo start planning of being like maybe in august we can do this maybe in september we can do this and Mm -hmm. with the hopes that for halloween in some capacity we'll be showing scary movies for sure (laughs) maybe we'll be back to be able to do some kind of rocky horror or it might just be a safer bet to say Ah, uh, we'll be back in 2022 for that sort of stuff. Did you end up doing that Rocky Horror non-participation screening, or did that? No. I couldn't remember if that happened or not. <laughs> I think that's a good idea still, to be honest, to ease our way back in. Yeah, I like that idea, and it's, you know, not funny haha, but funny that a worldwide pandemic disaster is what instigated it almost happening, and then being put back into lockdown instigated us not having the event. But yeah, the mindset was just that, Maybe we can screen Rocky Horror. Just make sure that everybody realizes it's not a joke. Just sit and watch it. Pretend you're in 1975. Pretend it's before Shadowcast exists. Pretend it's before you were throwing toast and stuff like that. And just watch the movie. I think it's a really neat experiment of just doing it and watching a participation film without the participation. 
I don't think the room would work so well in that kind <laughs> oh, of a gosh. thing. Yeah, especially if you have to be quiet too. Like, I mean, that's going to be an issue. Well, another thing we're missing is that on July 4th is the 100th anniversary of the Overlook Hotel Ball that you see in the photo in The Shining. And on that photo is actually written July 4th, 1921. So a little while ago when we thought that July 4th was a hopeful time to come back, I said to Lee, our head programmer, here's an excuse to screen The Shining. And he loves The Shining. So he was like, and done. But we're not going to hit that. So I think people will forgive us for just screening The Shining at Halloween and advertising it as in celebration of the 100th anniversary of the Overlook Hotel Ball. Yeah, it's still good. People will still come no matter what. So yeah, it's it, but it'll be interesting because like if we do, go, I don't know what the percentages will be when we do come back, but if they do start at like 15%, like that sounds small, but it actually is like a relatively okay number to begin with. Like, you know, I, we might be able to work with that. Like, I know you were talking about earlier, like what's what's even worth it, you know, like, 5% isn't worth it, you know, is 10% is 15, you know, so. In all these in-between times, we were at 50-person capacity plus staff. And that's not ideal, but mm-hmm. we got by on that, especially because there was some days, like especially right before Christmas, where we screened three movies that all sold out at 50 people per show. And people were very generous in their candy bar purchases. So we could do that. We could float at that level but it's just so crazy to think that leading into this we had parasite which was a couple hundred people a night for a long time like on a wednesday night we'd get 250 people which for us was staggering so maybe 2022 will just be yeah you can just come see movies who's to say but other places in the world are ahead of us and actually doing that sort of thing so it's nice to see that happening and it will be nicer when we can do that as well Mm-hmm. Was it up to us when, I, I want to say I knew this off the top of my head, but yeah, like 15% of 325 is about 50. So like when the last time happened, did they say you can have 50 people or was it 15% or like how did, who came up with that number? That was part of the rules was that it was all color coded, right? But yeah, the crazy thing with cinemas is there was no reward for getting to the next level. So whether it was red, yellow, green, gray, It was all either nobody or 50 people. And the argument back and forth that the multiplexes got away with for a little while was saying, well, we have 20 screens. Can't we do something else? And to be honest, I'm not sure what they negotiated, but they were able to have a number of screenings at a time for better or for worse, whether that was a good idea or not. But then there was also some times where we were back and they weren't because they didn't want to be open just for 50 people for their whole building. So that's what I'm hoping is when we come back, we're at a safer spot and a whole bunch of us have gotten our vaccines and the numbers are all better. And maybe they can say you can be at 50%. That'd be a dream for us. And if we could hit those numbers a lot more often, that would be something we could really get by on. But then it's just sooner or later, it's going to be just normal. And that's going to be so bizarre for us because we've gotten (laughs) so acclimated to 50 people being a really busy night. And so when we have 300 people in for a Halloween screening of The Shining or Rocky Horror or Saturday Morning Cartoons or something like Parasite, it's going to feel like a knockout punch in a good way. Yeah. Well, it's funny because like even 25% would be like 80, 82 people. So, I mean, even that alone would almost be like, that was like, if you're selling out at that point, I mean, that was 
over our breakout number, you know? So, I mean, even something like that could work. It's not like it has to be go immediately to a hundred people or something like that, you know? Yeah. If we have 80 people for three shows a day and then plus on that day, we had a pre-show rental for a birthday party or that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just math, right? It's like, Oh, that that's an extra potential of 30 tickets sold per show. And because we're not like the multiplexes, their problems I find much more harrowing than ours probably because imagine like it's a much bigger footprint, way more employees. You've got 10 to 20 screens. If you can only have 50 people in there, that's, you can't do that. Right. So no, no, it's just insane. I don't know how they're going to do it. And that was even before the added content that's streaming now, you know, in the day and date stuff for the two week or whatever it is now. I don't even remember what the, what these weird plans are anymore. It's out 45 days after or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, I think HBO and Warner Brothers have kind of hit that 45-day thing. And I could be wrong, but I think they're doing that for Dune and for Suicide Squad and for Batman, stuff like that. And I know Disney just announced it for a couple of their Marvel movies where they're like, same thing. It's going to be at least 45 days before hitting a streaming service, which I think that's... It's so funny to think once upon a time they would argue over being angry about something hitting a DVD or a video store within six months. And now they're yeah. like, can we please have 40 days? Well, it used to be like a year or more. I remember some stuff was like almost a year and a half. It was crazy. Oh yeah. And what was it? Was it, it was like ET or Batman 89 where it came out really fast. And I think that mm-hmm. caused a lot of stress from movie distributors for cinemas and for multiplexes. But now it's just the norm really. And yeah, like, I, I don't think we're going back. I don't think we're ever going to have something that always blows my mind. And I'm not judging this movie because I haven't seen it. But Aladdin always comes to my mind. The more recent Aladdin with Will Smith, the Guy Ritchie picture, inexplicably, somehow, <laughs> is that that movie made a billion dollars. I don't know anyone who's seen it. I don't know anyone who likes it or dislikes it. I haven't seen a kid wearing an Aladdin Will Smith t-shirt or lunchbox or anything like action figures. Nonetheless, it made a lot of money. Seemingly with like no cultural footprint and pretty fast. Like I think it made that money probably within 45 days. Yeah. So I think it could still work for these big movies. Like you could still put out your Fast and Furiouses and your Marvel movies and make a bunch of money in two months and then have it go to a streaming service and make a bunch of money and then go to a Disney Plus streaming service and have your subscribers happy so it's interesting now that it's they've come to a compromise a bit and i say they because like we're just the little guys like it's really the Mm -hmm. multiplexes and the distributors ironing this out but i think if we can just stand by and catch the scraps and get goodwill by continuing to be friends with netflix and stuff like that we're gonna get by just fine yeah well it's the one of the tragic ones for me is like june 8th is when that lost romero movie is supposed to be coming out Oh, I really want to see that. Yeah, that uh, amusement park. Exactly. Yeah, and that I couldn't ever see that at a Cineplex, of course. But like, that's such our bread and butter that it's it's a real shame that it may. I don't want to jinx it. You know that it may, it may never get a theatrical release. I mean, it may never have been released in the first place. It has some theatrical dates, apparently, like in the in the states. Yeah, oh, not, just not, not here. here, of course. <laughs> That doesn't make me feel better. <laughs> I mean, I feel better for his spirits, but not for us. I'm sure that, especially because that's, I believe, independently distributed. I have a feeling if we say, hey, can we have that in August, that they'll give it to us for a little bit. 
or even October, to be honest. Like if you yeah, did like yeah. a one day screening, two day screening or whatever, I don't know. We don't do those anymore. We don't do anything anymore. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fine, fine. Yeah. But if we played that for three or four nights over October or sooner, we always joke about it. Every, every month is Halloween month at the Mayfair. Really? <laughs> it's, it's so funny that people, people wait so in anticipation for Halloween. But if you look at our year long schedule, there's always horror movies on it. So it's like, yeah, we're kind of always there, but yeah, I'm sure we could get that Romero movie a little after we're back. Hopefully. That would play really well in like September, October for sure. Yeah. And what I like about it too is I think it's like 65 minutes. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> you could pump a, a couple of screenings in that day. It'd be great. It's always nice just to be able to show a movie at nine o'clock. And it's the curse of a movie like The Irishman is you really want to screen it, but you're like, oh my God, it's three hours long. So it's kind of hard to puzzle piece into a single screen. But a 65-minute movie? Perfect. Yeah, we, what would have been really cool is if they'd got, like, I don't know, the Romero Foundation or whatever, but if they had assembled kind of like a package of, like, some of his short films and commercials to go along to make, like, a 90-minute presentation with the amusement park. Yeah. That would have been... It's a lot to, like, be like, hey, people should do this, but that would have been, I think, for a theatrical uh, rollout, that would have been very cool. Well, especially, like, that's what the good old days was, right? You'd have a... 65 or 75 minute movie and that would be preceded by a newsreel and a educational short and a cartoon yeah for sure something that's like barely over an hour is perfect to tag a bunch of stuff onto because it's not like tagging a bunch of stuff onto a two and a half hour movie man yeah no that'll be good i'm not too uh, upset about that and and it's kind of cool like Oh, I say this as a horror fan, I guess, too, but I, I always kind of find it funny, the perceived lack of respect from some studios or some critics or whatever for horror in general. But when you really think about it, you look at the numbers, horror is supporting physical media and theatrical releases in some ways. Like it just over the years, it's it's so funny that it's this genre. People are kind of like, oh, I don't like talking about that. But you're like, they're keeping cinema in business. <laughs> like, Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, not single handedly, of course, but it's just it's pretty wild. And they've always been smart about keeping their budget down so they don't have to make $500 million. You see stuff where on paper, Man of Steel or Amazing Spider-Man 2 is considered a flop because they cost $300 million and only made $500 million. And I'm just making these numbers up, but for that kind of stuff. And when a movie like the more recent Halloween cost $10 million and makes Three hundred million dollars. You're like, oh, that's a much better investment. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what they do with Attack the Block too, which they announced like budget wise. Just if they take those lessons in, or especially when it's a sequel to something that you know kind of became a big hit after the Fire cult hit, at least. Kind of, it'll be interesting to see if they realize that because it's like you don't you need a budget in a way because it's like you know aliens kind of effects and stuff, but. That's the kind of story that, you know, like the first one, it wasn't just effects, you know, like they did so much great character work. I'm interested to see what they do with the story for the second one. Well, and Hollywood has always been guilty of, like, I remember quite some time ago, but seeing the budget for some, it was like a Tom Cruise or a George Clooney romantic comedy, but like no action, no effects, no nothing. And its budget was $120 million. And it just blew my mind, but it, it's all the things that add up where it's like, okay, we have all the equipment. We have all the crew. We spent all the money we could on music and just silly things like, oh, everybody has a trailer and everybody gets certain bonuses and whatever. Because you look at it and you're like, why didn't this cost? Like, why did Halloween cost $10 million and this cost $120 million? Even if you're saying that Tom Cruise got $20 bucks up front, it still doesn't make sense. But I think Hollywood in the past 20 years 
has gotten much smarter about a lot of that for even their biggest of movies of knowing that not everything can have $200 million thrown at it and it's going to turn out okay. Nor should it. Unless it's like the Meg or something, you know, we want the more money thrown at the Meg, the better. But it's interesting. The topic of conversation I was going to bring up is just by happenstance, I've listened to a few podcasts recently with people on them who I really like, both in their personal lives have have nothing but the best of reputations, but also because of their films, people like Frank Darabont and Mick Garris and Joe Dante. And just by happenstance, I heard them all on various podcasts and they all have kind of hit that grumpy old man talking about the movie industry level (laughs) where it's all with best intentions, but it's just that tone of voice that I think is akin to anything. And I hope I never get there, but you know, it's like when say like when the Beatles came out, there was people going like, this is different than the music I liked. I don't like it anymore. Or when Motown was big, I'm sure there was people saying this Motown is just garbage. So now a lot of these filmmakers of a certain age are really fretting about the industry and saying like, the thing that bothers me the most is when they say, oh, you can't make a movie like that anymore. And it's just not true because there's still great movies being made. I argue even the biggest movies, like I think Marvel is doing some really great stuff down to the smaller films, but it's like looking at their nostalgic past with real rose colored glasses, because you look at the seventies and it's like, yeah, the seventies was filled with trash, like the disaster movies and stuff like that. And then the eighties was like what, you know, a police Academy franchise and a bunch of Halloween knockoffs. So it's not like there was a point that you could point at and be like, ah, the 1970s, everything was perfect. And there always is older people complaining about the younger people stuff. And especially right now when you've got, Taika Waititi and Edgar Wright and Jordan Peele and Greta Gerwig. So yeah, I just find it interesting that there seems to be a lot of old folks saying, "Uh, can't make movies like that anymore. And I'm like, no, I think they are making movies like that because Parasite was pretty awesome. And that's not a mainstream center of the road franchise movie. It almost comes across like you can't make movies unsafe anymore. Like you can't lord over other actors anymore. Like that's almost what the translation feels like, where you're just like, can't be a dick to women anymore. It can't be, a, you know, like all this stuff where you're like, that wasn't good. Like the way they <laughs> yeah. made movies for the most part, you know, there was like just some of the stuff that you see, like that could have been done safely and wasn't, you know, and, and I mean, that's some of the appeal for a lot of the B stuff, but it's, it's kind of like, it almost makes me think of the whole like, quote-unquote PC culture that people complain about. You're just like, oh, yeah, you get in trouble for saying the slightest racist comment these days. You're just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah huh, funny <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah, and I remember David Letterman bugging a Fox News journalist because they were talking about the good old days. And Dave was like, yeah, but your good old days was living in suburbia with your rich white parents and watching Lone Ranger on TV. Meanwhile, not too far away, Jewish kids couldn't go in the same swimming pool as you and black kids couldn't go in the same school as you. So they were not the good old days. And even though talking about film in this sense is a much lighter topic, but it's still that they're looking at their past and thinking everything was perfect, forgetting that every single year in cinema history, there's a whole bunch of bad movies and a whole bunch of movies purely made just to make money. Like if you're mad at the Marvel movies, you got to remember that Jaws 2, 3, and 4 weren't made because they had a great story to tell. What it was all those airport movies that Airplane made fun of. There was like three or four of those, and they were just made because they were profitable. So Hollywood's a business. So being mad at a big-budget movie like Star Wars or Marvel, 
seems like a waste of time when there's so much great little stuff that is being supported because Parasite made a lot of money and Taika Waititi's independent films and Edgar Wright's independent films, like they have a following and they have a support base. So I just, I think it's too quick to give up on cinema because there's a lot of Fast and Furious movies. There's still good stuff out there. Edgar Wright's new movie looks really good. Last Night in Soho. Oh, of course. Yeah. And hopefully, I think that's July it's coming out. October. Octo- oh, shit. That's great. It looks like, a, I think it's set in the 60s. It's like a ghost story set in London. Damn. It feels like if it was in the 60s, Michael Caine would be in it. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, he's got a lot of, there's actors in it who are from that era. There's Rita Tushingham. There's Terrence Stamp. Oh, Terrence Stamp. Diana Rigg is in it. And I think she passed away recently. I think this might be her last movie, I yeah. think. Yes. Edgar Wright loves the uh, the British cinema of the, you know, 60s and 70s. So he... he yeah, don't look now and stuff. Yeah, he uses a lot of those actors. Man, that's awesome. So he's like the British Tarantino in some ways. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you look at Hot Fuzz, all of the old folks in that movie in the town were all that type of actor. Mm-hmm. And even with a slightly younger, like how he had... Timothy Dalton, who I think is a really good actor. So he had Timothy yeah. Dalton in one movie. Then he had Pierce Bronson in another movie. So he's had a couple of Bonds in his movies as well. But yeah, he's always been good for that. But yeah, I just, I'm like, yeah, the state of movies is good. Especially look at the Oscars this year. Like they really did a good job of of supporting some different stuff. And I wish we were in a world where No Man Land screened at the Mayfair. But you just got to look at Silver Lining, especially this past year and a half or so or a year and three months, whatever it's been of Nomadland got put onto Disney plus front and center. So a whole bunch of eyeballs saw that, that maybe might not have before. And now the next time Francis McDormand has a little art house drama out, maybe those people who watched on Disney plus will come and see it at the Mayfair. And that, that's all you can do is kind of hope for the best in that kind of situation. Yeah. And I mean, I, I feel like we'll probably get around to showing it at some point, you know, like an honorary screening or something like that. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. It's so hard to say because we keep passing these. Like, remember once upon a time we were looking forward to maybe showing Godzilla versus Kong? <laughs> yeah, that seems like years ago. But we're still in lockdown. Man, well, hey, hopefully we'll get the Eternals eventually, you know, if we the Nomadland follow up, <laughs> which yeah. I find hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I tease Scorsese because I love Scorsese, but I just imagine him being like, oh, Nomadland, what a great new filmmaker. And she did such a great job. What's her next project? Marvel. Oh, it's so great. Like, it made me think of Cage winning an Oscar and then doing The Rock right after or something like that. <laughs> or Con Air. You're like, that's uh, that's that's fine. You know, what? You're, you're like, yeah, I'm good. And now I'm going to have fun and get paid. Well, directors seem to be good at doing that the last little while. I mean, I think the best at it is Steven Sonnenberg, who is so good at leapfrogging back and forth between like an Ocean's Eleven movie and then some weird little black and white art house movie and then going back and doing Ocean's Twelve afterwards. So there's filmmakers who play like that. And and I, I wouldn't be surprised if her next film after Eternals is another tiny little nomad land type picture. That's good. I still haven't even seen it. First. So it's funny. We're still talking about it. I'm just like, ah, you know, it's, it's not going anywhere. You know? I'll see it eventually. And that's the other blessing, right? There's a nostalgia that's much older than any of us. I wish I could remember what the documentary was, but I saw a documentary and it was all about kids who grew up in the 50s and 60s, monster kids as they're called, who are fans of Universal Monster movies and Hammer Horror films, that kind of thing. It was somebody like Dana Gould, who's a writer and a comedian. And he said, 
I think it was him where he said, yeah, when I was a kid and I was eight, nine, 10 years old, I knew that my only chance of seeing Frankenstein, that was my favorite movie, was to see it at the independent cinema around Halloween. And if I missed it, that was it. I'd have to wait till next year. So there is some kind of joy and treasure hunting and fun to that. But now, really, you can just own the Blu-ray or probably watch it on some streaming service. So it's that trade-off. You can have it whenever, but there's no thrill of the hunt anymore with catching a movie like that. Yeah, it's a little bit of like like searching for records, you know, like crate digging versus like just going to eBay or Discogs or something like that and just ordering it directly. Like the thrill of the hunt is gone. But I mean, I mean, you're getting what you want in a way. So it's like a give and take. But still, there's something lost for sure. Yeah, like I was very casually hunting down Marvel and DC hologram cards from my youth. And I would find one every once in a while at a Comic-Con, but I wasn't really hunting for them. And then... Just during lockdown, I was like, I'm going to look around eBay. And I found most of the collection at a very reasonable price very fast. So I got them, but there wasn't that fun of like going into an old dusty thrift shop and digging through bins and finding that treasure. I got them, but it wasn't as fun as finding them out in the wild. Yeah, no, it's still good. Like, I mean, I've also searched forever and not found stuff. So it's also the frustration of that is also enraging. Well, the last little while I've been buying some treasure online and some I just got just because it was so cheap. And I was like, well, I'm either going to keep this or re-gift it or just put it on display at the Mayfair or whatever. But I got an album from a movie called Young Billy Young, which I've never seen. It's an old Western, but it was a dollar. So I'm like, ah, it's a dollar. I'll get it. Then just last weekend, there were some posters on sale and I had assumed they were small magazine size posters or lobby cards because I got them for $1, $1, $3, and $3. And then went to pick them up and they're full posters. They're, I don't think they're quite full poster size, but they're big. And it's like an old Orson Welles movie, an old Michael Caine movie, and a couple movies I never heard of, but they're really beautiful. And I kind of felt bad because I'm like, man, I think I could flip these to like 50 bucks a piece really fast. Man, and that's just fun. You know, at that point, you're like, no, it's a new project for Josh. Yeah, or I can sell them for like Mayfair fundraising, but I didn't expect them to be full poster size, but yeah, they were giving them away for nothing online, so I got them. Jeez, so many adventures for you. We thought organizing the posters downstairs was going to be the big deal, but now you're, you're getting free, great, <laughs> full-size posters. Like It keeps going. It's like your Halloween when you get a full-size chocolate bar, and you're like, wow, full-size. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're not rushed off like we were last week because we weren't paying attention and we didn't get to... Uh, put a punchline at the end. Let's start talking about things we have seen recently, some recommendations since we can't recommend coming to the Mayfair at the moment. We can uh, chat about other cool things we've seen. So I did like that the punchline with the, was that there was no punchline, though. I will say that we've never had one of those. It still sounded OK, but it was funny just to be like, uh, done. <laughs> like, did anyone notice that? Ah, it's fine. Andrew, have you seen anything good in the last week? Well, I haven't seen this movie in a while, but it's one of my favorites. Uh, I think it's on Prime. It's called St. Jack. It's from the 70s. It's Peter Bogdanovich who directed The Last Picture Show. And Targets. And Targets. And it's Ben Gazzara who played the bad guy in Roadhouse. <laughs> not, that, not that that's like his most notable role. For us it is. <laughs> but you can argue that it could be. St. Jack, it's about this guy living in the Philippines. And he's sort of a part-time pimp, part-time accountant. And he's, you know, like kind of this... Hawaiian shirt wearing cigar smoking 
guy and it's just about you know like his way of life and him trying to live like he, he wants to start like a hotel and it's just about his dream life in the Philippines and it's based on a really good novel by uh, Paul Thoreau yeah like it's not very plot heavy but it's just about kind of the red light district in the Philippines and in the 70s and George Lazenby is in it so it's got James Ooh. Bond in it oh, man all of these James Bond related things lately <laughs> Anyway, it's it's excellent. And uh, yeah, I think it's on, I have it on Blu-ray, but I think you can catch it on Amazon Prime if I'm not mistaken. So highly, highly recommended. If you're a fan of gritty, off the beaten path films from the 70s, it's highly, highly recommended. And Denim Elliott's in it from uh, Indiana Jones. Oh, cool. Man, huge. Well, okay. I watched Army of the Dead and it was fine with three extremely enraging plot things that didn't have to happen and made no sense. So can't really recommend it, but didn't hate it, just hated moments of it. But really... What a glowing review. That's for their... Well, their... <laughs> I'm so complete. I wanted to like it, but I'm just sort of like, eh, it's just like certain times in movies when something happens where it's just like someone gets betrayed and then has enough time to warn the other people, but instead just says nothing and then dies. And you're like, cool, yeah. great. You know, it's just bad writing. But I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't awful. It was okay. But like the good thing that I watched, kind of uh, following up on the Cushing thing I've been on the last few weeks, but for the first time I watched Shockwaves. Oh, that's a good one. Which I know, yeah, you guys must have seen. The underwater Nazi zombies? Nazi zombies. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. And like I avoided it for years because I guess I thought like Horror Express, it would be kind of boring or something, but it was awesome. Really good music and the tone was great. And like, I mean, the, it's not really a zombie movie. Like the zombies are only in it for maybe 10 minutes of screen time, probably, but it's the vibe is great. Cushing is Cushing, you know, so that's amazing. And then for Bad Movie Night last night, we, we watched Chaos Walking, which was that star-studded one with, uh, you know, Daisy Ridley and Tom Holland and, and Mads Mikkelsen's the bad guy and like the crazy cast. It was terrible. It was, they sat on the shelf for six years and you could tell why. And it was just like some just stupid, I think it's based on a book, but it's just like, and men only, you can hear their thoughts and there's no women and then there is a woman and then they're like trying to get the woman and uh, I don't know, it goes on like that. So uh, not great, but I was like, okay, I, this was a good bad movie choice. So, so that's fun. I watched Fire and Ice, old Ralph Bashki movie. Oh yeah. I love Ralph Bashki and I know, I don't know, there's something about his style that it's just, it's so rough around the edges, but it feels so like homemade. And it's that weird thing of, trace animation but because of that they can do these big giant things so fire and ice i always think that extra step is so weird because they have to record all the actors doing the stuff and it was back in the age of film so they're probably shooting it on like 16 millimeter film or something and then animating over it but then putting in all the monsters and the giant game of thrones type surroundings and everything and and it had a a shockingly non-offensive central female character who Although very Conan style, she's almost naked through the whole movie. <laughs> but she like is smart and defends herself and escapes and kills the bad guys and has a romance plot, but is never kind of the damsel in distress through some of it. So I thought that was very interesting that she was less offensive than some like Disney princesses. And it just looked great. And I just watched it off of Canopy, off of the library streaming site. Oh, nice. They have a lot of good treasure on there, but it looked great. There's something about flat 2D animation that really holds up. I especially love watching it at the Mayfair every once in a while. That's why I'm looking forward to speaking of something that's kind of in the same genre that 
hoping that we can screen heavy metal once we're back as we were planning to right before the more recent lockdown. But but yeah, I really love him. And I think it's a shame that it's funny, both he and Don Bluth, who are very different filmmakers because Ralph Bashki did Fritz the Cat and Don Bluth did American Tale. But both of them kind of got put into director jail after having a couple flops in a row and had other theatrical projects they wanted to do and just never did. And both of them are still around as we speak. They're older guys for sure. But the last 15, 20 years, it's a shame that we didn't get a few more features out of them. But I think after Ralph's side, I think when Cool World tanked and I think for Don Bluth, it was Titan AE. Oh, man. I think lost a lot of money. That was supposed to be the Star Wars of its time. Yeah, for sure. I remember that movie. And it, it wasn't. <laughs> Both those poor guys didn't really have a great wrap up to their careers, really, but a lot of good treasure out there. And yeah, so I liked catching that. I think I've seen all of Ralph's movies now, but maybe sooner or later we'll, we'll get to put a Lord of the Rings or something like that on screen. I'm not sure what's available, but it's always fun to catch stuff like that at the Mayfair. So we'll see. Yeah, that was a fascinating version of Lord of the Rings. Maybe the best version. I know people who are Lord of the Rings fans who are big fans of it. I've seen it at the Mayfair years ago. It's kind of fuzzy in my brain. But uh, yeah, I know people who are probably fans of it more than the Peter Jackson stuff, actually. Yeah, it's funny how short it is considering once we saw the Peter Jackson versions, but hey. And I think that's another example, too, is I might be wrong, but I think there was only one because he had intended to do another, but that movie didn't make a ton of money. So they just went, nope, that's it. It's like, eh, it's the last we've seen of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's wrap things up now. We can see our time clock is winding down. So uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Stay tuned. We will give you updates as we have them. Like I said, unfortunately, right now, it looks like we're still down for another couple months. But if you stay tuned to our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and website blog, we will give updates as we have updates. And we thank you for your continued support while we're down. And we look forward to having you back in-house very soon. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next week on the Mayfair Lockdown Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, I forgot to tell everybody that tonight I'm going to watch Hard Target for the oh. first time. That's a good one. Yeah, directed by your boy, John Woo. First time ever? First time? Yeah, never seen it. Oh, you'll like it. Yeah, and then I'm going to watch the work print afterwards because it's 30 minutes longer. Nice. Greatest movie ever. Woo. In an age of myth and legend, the world trembles before the power of Necron, master of evil, ruler of ice. Against him stand Tigra, princess of Firekeep, and captive of the ice demons, Larn. Tigra! Last of a mighty warrior tribe, and her only hope of escape. And Dark Wolf, mysterious Avenger, and sworn enemy of the Ice Tyrant. Their courage will be tested. The challenge must be met. The final battle between the armies of the cold and the keepers of the flame is about to begin. Fire and ice. From the visual imagination of Ralph Bakshi and the dazzling artistry of Frank Frazetta, a fantasy adventure from 20th Century Fox.